analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful day here in Camelot's Blue skies, not a cloud in sight. We've got a lot on the show to talk about. Uh, we're going to dive into sawmill safety and a apparent review of WorkSafe BC's actions in a couple of sawmill explosions in a little bit. We're going to set the stage today, Election Day in Alberta. We'll have a political science professor from that province join us, and we'll finish off with our weekly chat on all politics, Canadian and American, with TRU's Jeffrey Myers. But first, yesterday, the BC Real Estate Association, the BC Notaries Association, the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, the Appraisal Institute of Canada, and the Canadian Mortgage Brokers Association, all jointly issuing five recommendations to government, all on the issue of money laundering, a fire starter, in this, uh, fire starter issue in this province for sure. Real pleasure to welcome to the program, the CEO of the BC Real Estate Association, Darlene Hyde. Good morning, Darlene. Good morning. How are you? I'm uh, great. Uh, it may rain here, but... I'm still in a great, great mood. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, listen, Darlene, uh, money laundering has been uh, a top-of-mind issue for British Columbians for, uh, what, a year or two now. Uh, it's one of those rare issues that I think cuts across political lines. People generally, and especially in southern Vancouver Island and, and Metro Vancouver, uh, with the housing crisis and the overdose crisis, uh, are particularly sensitive to this particular issue. There's some strong emotions running here. Uh, as I mentioned yesterday, uh, you, along with some other organizations, uh, tabled five recommendations to deal with it. Uh, before we get into those recommendations, I just wanted to kind of set a baseline. So to you, uh, currently right now, if somebody walked up to a real estate agent with a hockey bag full of cash and said, listen, uh, I want to buy that uh, that $1.8 million house over there, uh, cash on the barrel head, uh, what, if any, regulations are in place currently as we talk uh, to try to track where that money goes uh, or, you know, regulate it in any way, shape or form? Or is it just a straight, okay, if you got the money, we can do the sale? Well, uh, the uh, realtors in British Columbia, uh, by and large, 99.5% of them don't take cash at all. Uh, and uh, if they do, uh, it's probably limited to the amount that uh, lawyers can handle in cash, which is $7,500. Uh, but uh, by and large, uh, cash has no place in uh, brokerages. Uh, real estate brokerages, and uh, it has been a practice uh, for many years to do this. I think what we're saying is let's make it an established best practice and let's adhere to it. And so, uh, yeah, accept only verified funds such as certified checks, bankers' drafts, direct deposits, anything that's traceable, uh, but not cash. So, uh, you know, in the real estate business, it just isn't done. It just is not done in yeah. these cash transactions. As you mentioned there, recommendation number one, accept only verified funds. Um, how, do you, how do you do that in order to kind of crack down on a money launderer? I mean, uh, if someone comes to you, whether it's, uh, you know, they've got a bank account, whatever the deal is, uh, how, what would you like to see happen so that you, as a real estate agent, you can say, okay, this is legit, uh, this is money, uh, this person has accumulated it legally, um, I don't have any concerns or personal worries about this, we can proceed with this sale. How do you best do that? Well, I think that goes to our second recommendation, which is mandatory anti-money laundering education. Uh, mandatory anti-money laundering education is prevalent in other sectors of the economy, like financial services, for example. The teller at the bank has been trained 
in that kind of thing. And the training is really around noticing and being able to appreciate suspicious transactions, uh, asking questions around the provenance of the money, where has the money come from, uh, looking at situations of unexplained wealth and asking more questions. So I think it's all about knowing your client, as the investment uh, houses do. They know their client. They know their, 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 their financial situation. And I think it falls upon realtors to do the same thing. Uh, they haven't had the training. And we are calling for mandatory training to be delivered by the regulator, which is the Real Estate Council of British Columbia. And uh, we feel that every realtor in this province should have the same kind of anti-money laundering training that tellers and banks do. Now, there's a couple things at play here. Number one, as you're aware, Peter German has done a second phase money laundering report, which focuses by and large on real estate and housing. There's also luxury cars and horse racing in there, but the real estate and housing angle is the one you're most interested in. Uh, we haven't seen the the bulk of that report other than one little chapter and one aspect of this particular issue. But uh, Darlene, how important or how much will it weigh in on what happens next for your association and everybody else uh, when this full report and whatever is in it comes out? Well, I think it will be of extreme importance. Uh, we're expecting it in several weeks, um, and along with the other report on the expert panel on money laundering, which is looking at regulatory uh, gaps and uh, initiatives to close regulatory gaps and, and that sort of thing. But uh, we look forward to the, uh, the um, German report because uh, we don't really have, uh, as an association of realtors, we don't have good visibility into the criminal elements we have left we have left you know uh, dealing with criminal elements to law enforcement and to the police that's that's just not our our bailiwick so we don't have a good appreciation of what's out there and hopefully uh, Peter German's report will reveal the size and scope of money laundering uh, in in the real estate sector and and I'm sure there will be a lot of great recommendations that go to enforcement uh, which to date I think everyone recognizes hasn't been as strong as it could be and uh, also recommendations around information sharing so that everybody that's fighting this problem has has access to the same kind of data and information which may we need to be smarter than the criminals uh, in order to 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 put a stop to this and being smarter means sharing information and working as a team and that's why the five organizations got together we felt as an industry we could start that and we've been approached since yesterday by two other industry associations who want to work with us mm. how does how does the industry self-regulate I mean uh, the real estate industry is a, a vast and sprawling one across the entire province with a number of different businesses and uh, must be thousands and thousands of agents uh, selling homes right across BC how do you self-regulate to ensure that everybody's playing by the rules and everybody's communicating with each other and to prevent, you know, bad actors from going out there and, and um, you know, being, uh, you know, helping to facilitate money laundering? Well, we have two regulators. We're not self-regulating. Uh, we have the superintendent of uh, real estate and we have the Real Estate Council of British Columbia. Both of them are regulators uh, uh, overseeing the practice of real estate in this province. So uh, we have those backstops in terms of uh, they, are, they are taking complaints from customers, they're taking complaints from other realtors, they're dealing with uh, any breaches of uh, code of conduct or, or that kind of thing. Uh, so th that 
that's a very important piece uh, to know. Uh, as for the industry, as for the professionals that we represent at BC Real Estate Association, we advocate education, upping the game, professionalism, um, doing things uh, the best way you can. And so we provide, we provide uh, educational resources along with the other uh, 11 member boards in the province. So those kinds of things, professionalism and realtor reputation are very close concerns to our heart. And we do everything we can to promote professional practice. Now, obviously, this industry is a bit under the spotlight here. You've uh, you've taken some steps to try and address a problem. You've made five recommendations. We have uh, question marks about whatever we see around Mr. German's report. Um, what are the plans to circle back on this issue in, in a few months or a year to kind of go, okay, we've taken this first step now. Is it working? Uh, are things coming together? Do we need to do more? Do we need to reassess? How, how does the next step proceed here? Well, first of all, we'd like to see what comes out of the Peter German report and the expert panel. I think there will be a lot of common uh, initiatives that we can work on uh, uh, with other partners, not just other industry partners, but regulators and uh, uh, and government. So uh, we want to see the full scope of the problem, and then I think an action plan can be put together where there's a multi-party uh, a multi-party uh, meeting. Uh, of industry, government, regulators, uh, enforcement agencies, and we can keep on top of this uh, problem. So I think we're just waiting. We're waiting now to, to see what, what other information comes forward. Uh, in essence, you want to improve communication, you want to improve transparency. Uh, I guess my last question to you is, is how do you do that? Because one of the one of the issues that's allowed money laundering to flourish, I think, is uh, the the overlapping areas of jurisdiction between the federal government, the province, uh, then you look at the RCMP, and then you look at, you know, your FinTrack, your, uh, your various commissions, B Securities Commission, the Financial Institutions Commission, all of these agencies, and they can't seem to communicate with each other. And now you guys are coming in and saying, we want more communication, we want more transparency we want to address this problem how do you ensure that communication happens well i don't think there's a silver bullet there but i'm very heartened to see that the federal government bill blair met with um with uh, uh the our attorney general here in british columbia so at least the federal government and the provincial government are talking that's a, f- a necessary first step uh, if you get those two talking, then then basically FinTrack, uh, the federal uh, uh, the federal agency, RCMP, a federal agency can begin to communicate better with some of the provincial agencies, Financial Institutions Commission, the BC Securities Commission, and other players. But it starts at the top, and I'm really heartened to see uh, to, to see uh, Bill Blair uh, talking with uh, uh, the Honorable David Eby. All right. Darlene, it's a pleasure. Thank you for taking some time to address this, and uh, and it's an interesting first step. I'm really intrigued to see where we go from here. Great to talk to you. That's the BC Real Estate Association CEO, Darlene Hyde, talking about uh, five recommendations her and other groups have worked together on to address the massive problem of money laundering. We're going to talk uh, sawmill safety and some uh, issues around WorkSafe BC when we return here on The Woodford Show. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. 
your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back. Back in 2012, uh, there were explosions at two sawmills, one in Burns Lake, the other in Prince George, the Babine Forest Products Mill and the Lakeland Mill. Uh, four people in all killed, four workers in those mills, dozen others injured. Uh, and there's been a years-long battle for, I guess, justice ever since. Uh, a new turn in that is uh, the province's enlisted Vancouver lawyer, Lisa Helps, uh, to essentially assess the actions of WorkSafe BC in and around those sawmill explosions. Uh, joining the program to talk a little bit about that is uh, Brad West, uh, who is Port Coquitlam Mayor, but also in this particular case wearing his hat as United Steelworkers Union spokesperson. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, Shane. Um, first off, I don't know what they're paying you as mayor, but do you need a second job or what's going on here? <laughs> well, as you know, my, uh, <laughs> the United Steelworkers, and this is uh, yeah. uh, prior, prior to becoming mayor, and this is a campaign that uh, is near and dear to my heart and that I was uh, very much involved in, and so uh, continue to take an interest in and and help out uh, the steel workers on this campaign. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been seven years. Uh, what is the concern from the union's perspective around uh, these two incidents, and particularly where it concerns WorkSafe BC, Brad? So the union is uh, has been concerned for uh, some time that WorkSafe BC uh, failed to live up to its responsibility to protect the health and safety of workers and uh, through all the twists and turns of the coroner's inquest and the Dibo report and McAtee report which were reports uh, that were initiated by the province into uh, basically what happened in in the workplace in the uh, explosions of the sawmills we learned a number of things and one of the most disturbing things that we learned uh, emanated from a, an FOI request that the steel workers uh, produced and it resulted in a WorkSafe BC internal document um, that was uh, circulated to their senior managers following the explosion at Babine Forest Products, but prior to the explosion at Lakeland Mills. And that uh, document stated WorkSafe BC was concerned that an enforcement strategy to address wood dust and sawmills which, as we know, uh, was the accelerant that led to both explosions, that an enforcement strategy around wood dust in sawmills would lead to industry, quote, industry pushback. Uh, and so for an agency that's supposed to be responsible for the health and safety of workers, you've got a sawmill that's exploded. You've got uh, two people who've been killed in it. You've had dozen, dozens who've been injured. And to take the approach that... Uh, a enforcement, uh, an enforcement blitz on, on sawmill sawdust might result in industry pushback to us it is just unconscionable. And of course, what you had happen was uh, a few months later, another sawmill exploded, killing two more people. And so we really think that it is important that there be a proper assessment of WorkSafe BC's actions, both before, during, and then after the, the sawmill explosions, this really is the, goes to the agency's primary responsibility, which is keeping workers alive, protecting their health and safety. Uh, and clearly in this situation, there was a, a massive failure. 
We obviously don't know what, what Ms. Helps is going to find when she reviews WorkSafe BC, but let's build off of your concern that, that there was uh, some influence from industry here that, that prevented some things from happening. Uh, how, how, in your mind, how would WorkSafe BC be changed or altered or what needs to be done uh, in a perfect world to uh, address this particular issue and to make it um, more of a, uh, an institution that's not perv- uh, you know susceptible to these kind of pressures? Well, for us, um, our belief is that really what is required is a, is a culture change at the agency. And, and that comes uh, from the very top. Uh, it comes from the, the culture that is created by the senior executive and leadership team at WorkSafe BC. And, and we say that the culture needs to change to put workers at the center of these decisions. Um, too often, the health and safety of workers is considered last, or it's considered, um, you know, off the side of the desk. It's the last consideration. Uh, we really think that it needs to be at the forefront and be the primary consideration, not whether or not properly enforcing regulations, uh, for instance, around uh, saw, uh, sawdust, is going to result in industry pushback. Uh, you know, I understand that industry is going to have a position on things, and that's fine. But when you're responsible for the health and safety of workers, that needs to be your, your primary responsibility. And we think that WorkSafe DC really needs to have a culture adjustment to get back to its core responsibility. Uh, I'm assuming the union has, has, has communicated with WorkSafe BC in, in the years since. So what are you hearing from them on this specific concern? Um, I mean, we've had a, a lot of platitudes from the agency. I mean, they, they assert that, yes, you know, they're concerned about worker health and safety, and, and that's their, you know, number one priority. But from our perspective, that's something that's very easy to say, but it seems harder to actually put into practice because the, the results really speak for themselves when it comes to our experience as a, as a union that represents primary, uh, primarily uh, uh, forestry workers uh, and people who work in the mining industry, um, two of the most uh, dangerous industries in the world. And w- we just haven't seen their actions live up to their words. And so, um, you know, we feel very strongly that there needs to be uh, accountability here, that um, government has a responsibility to ensure that that agency, which they have charged with protecting the health and safety of all of our provinces, workers, has that as their primary responsibility. And so our hope is that through Ms. Help's uh, review of the, the conduct of uh, WorkSafe BC during this very sad and tragic event, uh, we'll be able to have recommendations that can provide for the adjustment that is desperately needed at WorkSafe BC to ensure that things like this don't happen in the future. Uh, really quick, Brad, what's your understanding of the timeline that uh, Lisa Helps has to operate on here? Uh, my understanding is that government has tasked her to produce a report, including recommendations that needs to be delivered to the Attorney General by mid-July. And at that point, the Attorney General will uh, conduct a review of the report, uh, and then we'll make uh, public any recommendations that uh, would be contained within it. Okay. Brad, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. 
Thank you, Shane. Appreciate it. That's Brad West uh, speaking as a spokesperson for the United Steelworkers Union, also the mayor of Port Coquitlam, uh, talking about WorkSafe BC and uh, concerns around those two sawmill explosions in 2012. Be interesting to see where that goes. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we'll set the stage for Election Day in Alberta. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, turning our attention to the province next door, it is E-Day in Alberta. Albertans are going to go to the polls and decide uh, if they're going to retain the NDP, which uh, polls say is, is a little bit unlikely, or they're going to go with Jason Kenney and the United Conservative Party. Uh, we'll have to see what happens this evening. But to sort of set the stage, we thought we'd bring on uh, Jim Groom, a political science professor at Medicine Hat College, to kind of uh, tell us what's what in the province. Good morning, Jim. How's it going? Good morning. It's good. It's, uh, election day is always exciting here, so we're kind of keen to get going and see how the future leads us. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, uh, last time you and I talked, uh, Mr. Kenny had a sizable lead. Uh, he was dealing with some uh, some blowback on his campaign for a number of reasons, the kamikaze candidate, all that kind of stuff. Um, polls I'm looking at now still show Mr. Kenny in front, but uh, Miss Notley and the NDP have creeped up a little bit as these controversies continue to plague. Uh, any idea if, if this is in fact going to be a close race, or is this a lead up to what will be a sort of a devastating one side finish? Well, it's always a bit of a guess, uh, guessing game, but it seems like the uh, it's going to be a little closer than predicted early. Now, uh, they have sort of divided the province up with the rural areas going UCP and the uh, greater Edmonton areas, typically uh, NDP, and the battleground tends to be in Calgary. So uh, it sort of depends on how Calgary goes. Now, the Flames lost last night, so that make, might make for some angry voters. So I'm not sure which way that goes when they're angry. <laughs> uh, what do you read into how Mr. Kenny and Ms. Notley are finishing their campaigns? Sometimes that's an indicator of what the party's seeing internally. Uh, Mr. Kenny is not staying in Calgary to shore up support there. He's finishing in Edmonton and in strong NDP territory, as you mentioned. Uh, Ms. Notley's doing the reverse. She finished in Calgary in enemy territory as well, so it doesn't look like she needs to, or she doesn't think she needs to shore up support at home. Uh, and what do you read into that? I think that's a typical standard uh, approach when they uh, they strategically look and they start all the campaigns with uh, shoring up their uh, their supporters. It makes it look uh, good for the media and it makes it look like they have a lot of good support. And then at the towards the end, they start to realize that there may be some swing uh, ridings that they can uh, push their way with uh, maybe 500, 1,000 votes. Uh, if they can swing those, that will work for them. And I think just about every time the parties then go to those swing votes at the end and see if they can't persuade some uh, to join them and uh, uh, I know that uh, Mr. Kenny was up in the uh, Grand Prairie and uh, uh, Valley View area there uh, earlier in the week as well and so I think he's trying to make sure that things are good in those areas because they, they have tended to be NDP somewhat and so uh, yeah I think that's the strategy they go with they try and find those swing votes at the end to, to win over just that one or two little more seats that they might be able to, to, to add to their uh, their total. Has this a campaign that's gone more or less the way you thought it would, or have there been any surprises down the stretch? Well, it's a little more uh, rancorous and uh, a little more acrimony than I think anybody expected. Um, we knew that the UCP was going to focus in on uh, on jobs and the economy and uh, pipelines, and that's what they've done. And we knew that the uh, NDP had to change that channel because uh, the economy has been very flat here in Alberta, and a lot of jobs have been lost. They can't really run on their economic uh, 
record for the last four years. So they've got to find something else. And so they wanted to go with the ethical issue. And uh, when you get into the ethical aspects, you get it very personal. And I think it becomes a little bit more uh, contentious between uh, the two. And it has been described by many as a, a bit of an ugly, uh, ugly campaign that's gone on for sure. And at the end of the night, how do you see, I mean, a lot of spotlight, obviously, on, on the NDP's Rachel Notley and the UCP's Jason Kenney and all this, and, and fair enough. Uh, but what do you see as far as the fate of, of Mr. Mandel with the Alberta Party and Mr. Kahn with the Liberal Party? Well, I think they may win their own seats. I think there's uh, good, good support from locally, from what I understand. However, this is a two-party race. It's, uh, it really has boiled down to a bit of an existential debate on uh, the future of the NDP to, to a large extent, and whether we will have a competitive process here in Alberta or we'll go back to the uh, the, the long range, long-reigning, uh, you know, uh, conservative groups that uh, that existed in the social credit and the progressive conservatives beforehand, uh, or if we get more like the rest of the western provinces and have a bit of a, a two-party race each time and uh, there's some competition, which uh, has sort of been lacking in Alberta for many years. Is there any chance here, Jim, that we could see some kind of minority government situation where um, things are so close, and I, I, I think the odds are against us personally, but I thought I'd throw you out, where the, where the seat count is so close that perhaps an extra seat or two by the Alberta Party or the Liberal Party might make the difference? at the end of the day or no? If the uh, Liberals or the Alberta Party were able to really swing a number of votes, maybe five, um, maybe ten, five to ten range, then I think a minority government might might be actually uh, uh, a possibility. Um, I tend to think that the Alberta Party is attracting people more from the you know, the former PCs to an extent, but also from the NDP. So uh, what they're not gaining for the NDP, they're, uh, they're gaining for themselves. So it could result in a minority government. We're, we haven't had uh, minority governments in uh, Alberta for maybe ever. <laughs> so it's, it isn't really much of, uh, in our tradition, but it would be uh, certainly interesting to see that develop and, uh, if it went that way. I, I think that for it to really to occur, we'd, we'd have to have more support with the Alberta Party. Um, I don't see much support for the Liberals here, but if the Alberta Party was able to swing five or ten, we may be looking at some kind of a, uh, a coalition and a bit of a minority government that might might exist for sure. Now, Mr. Kenny, who everyone thinks will likely come out uh, today the winner, but again, we'll have to see how, how, what kind of cards were dealt at the end of the night, uh, has drawn a lot of attention for some of his tough talk and, and a lot of attention in this province for his tough talk, namely around promises on day one. He's going to turn off the taps and flex his muscle and really show that those British Columbian socialists uh, what's what. Um, your thought on, on some of the tougher things he said, do you think there's going to be is a really some follow-through here, or, or is this, at the end of the day, going to be a tough election talk, and then he's going to go, okay, well, I'm going to do some harsh things, but I'm not going to shoot myself in the foot by shutting off the taps and, uh, and uh, you know, kneecapping some of the profits that come out of the oil sands companies in order to kind of get BC. For sure. I, I think uh, campaigning and, and uh, ruling are two different things, and we see this lots of times where the rhetoric is really ramped up during the election. Uh, to appeal to uh, that that base and uh, to appeal the, to the anger, you know, it's hard to stand up before a group and say, uh, "I'm taking a moderate st stance and we're going to do a moderate approach and it's going to be realistic." And it's much easier to stand up and be uh, very vociferous and to come in with kind of an extreme position and people uh, kind of uh, get enthused about it and they uh, they run with it. But I think you're, you're exactly right that 
they'd they'd really be uh, you know cutting off their nose to spite their face if they turn off the taps and uh, you know start to irritate BC even more because in the bottom analysis they if they ever do want to get a pipeline through and the expansion of the Trans Mountain they're going to have to have BC at least somewhat on side for that in order to occur and uh, if they alienate Ottawa uh, why would Ottawa continue to support uh, our our agendas here in Alberta when it's contrary to BC I think the Liberals have 17 seats in the Lower Mainland and they only have four in Alberta and I doubt very much as they'll have any after October so uh, it really doesn't make political sense for the Liberals to uh, get on side uh, with a national energy program of uh, you know transportation of uh, our our resources to tidewater if the uh, alienation is so strong that uh, every time they turn around there's there's somebody uh, you know nipping at their heels trying to complain now uh, I guess my last question to you Jim is are we going to see a result tonight or, or uh, you know there's some of the advanced ballots uh, some of the vote anywhere ballots that will have to be counted I believe tomorrow uh, do you anticipate that that could make the difference and we could be in for a 24 hour wait before an eventual winner comes out or again do you think it's going to be a lopsided victory I wouldn't be surprised that there's a few seats where they have to have uh, recounts and they have to wait for the, the formal votes and the pre, pre-votes to come in. Uh, generally speaking, if you voted in your own writing uh, in, a, in an advance poll, you can st- it, it's going to be recorded right away. But it's those 223,000, I think is what they're quoting, or 33,000, that are uh, uh, in, in a different writing and they, they voted because you could vote in the mall, you could vote at the airport, you could vote everywhere. And and uh, I think those ones on occasion may make a difference if they, and elections Alberta will have to make a determination if they have a really close race someplace, then they won't be able to call it until they do get those votes in, just on the off chance that it might impact. Of course, those uh, 233,000 are spread across the province, so it would be unusual for an all to be concentrated in one riding and have too much of an impact. But uh, I think we'll see... Um, by the you know ten eleven o'clock tonight that it's uh, it's called and they uh, they are uh, announcing a, a winner one way or the other. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for taking some time and uh, setting the stage for what should be a very interesting day in Alberta. Uh, I'd love to have you back on uh, maybe tomorrow. And we can kind of deal with the fallout of it all. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, how, how it turns out after all our predictions turn out to be wrong. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Jim, thanks again. Appreciate the time. Take care. Bye for now. That's Medicine Hat College political science professor Jim Groom setting the stage for today's election day in Alberta. We'll take a quick break on the Whitford Show. On the other side, we'll do our weekly Tuesday chat with Jeffrey Myers. Local news now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to welcome, as we always do every Tuesday of the week, uh, TRU lecturer, also lawyer, Jeffrey Myers. Good morning, Jeffrey. How are you? Oh, good morning, Shane. Good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, so, hey, listen, we both, uh, after the fact, uh, doing the show last week, thought, hey, we missed the whole Bill 21 fiasco to Quebec, and we thought that deserved some limelight. Uh, so why don't we make that our starting point right now? Uh, Bill 21, for people who don't know, is the Quebec government's proposed law 
that, as I understand it, would restrict public servants uh, in positions of authority from wearing uh, quote-unquote religious symbols as, as such. I know there's been a fair amount of reaction to that, including, I believe, the uh, the city of Montreal passing a resolution essentially opposing uh, the provincial uh, proposed law. So uh, as you look at this thing, Jeffrey, I mean, there's a lot to get into here about religious freedoms and all that kind of jazz, but uh, what's your take as you, as you look at what's unfolding in Quebec? Well, I mean, I think that this this question of um, what is described um, by the government of Quebec as laïcité, which is a French word, which is in kind of vaguely translatable as secularism, and it's it's a similar, but it's really quite a different concept than the idea, I think, in some ways, of secularism that we tend to associate with uh, um, the usual political culture in Canada, and it involves a really kind of assiduously um, neutral. Uh, public sphere scrubbed of any kind of religious uh, symbolism whatsoever. So this issue, particularly around um, the wearing of um, of uh, head coverings by observant Muslim women uh, working for the government in some capacity, working, for example, as lawyers in the court system or as teachers, uh, as well as men who are wearing turbans, Sikh men or Jewish men wearing kippahs, or in fact, uh, for the sake of... Uh, you know, including everybody, the uh, the government of Quebec also includes the wearing of crucifixes or any other outward symbols of religion. So there had been attempts by, uh, sorry, a series of uh, governments in Quebec to make this happen um, and to bring a law like Bill uh, 21 forward. Um, and if you'll recall, it was an election issue in 2015, um, and one of the reasons that the bottom fell out of the NDP's support uh, in the province, at least this was the conventional wisdom, was that uh, Mr. Mulcair's position, which I think was quite principled and correct, that this type of legislation was not going to be conformant with the Charter and that his party wasn't prepared to support it, was seen to be out of step with some in Quebec and including some of the folks who had voted for him. So there was a sort of significant loss of support there. Uh, and we've now seen uh, a Quebec election where a new party was formed and part of the sort of thresh- the the campaign issue that they campaigned on was, you know, reintroducing uh, legislation or attempting legislation of this type. And in order to avoid charter scrutiny, uh, the um, government of Quebec, perhaps emboldened by uh, similar measures taken by the Ford government uh, after its election, have uh, called the, used the notwithstanding clause, which is section 33 of the charter, which permits an override of certain substantive charter rights, um, to uh, to do this, and um, you know, typically Section 35, and I've written about this before, and I've spoken about this before, is Section 33. That is, is a kind of um, was a compromise that was agreed upon by Mr. Trudeau Sr. and the premiers when they were drafting the charter um, to kind of protect uh, on the margins the autonomy of the provinces from being sort of overruled by the Supreme Court uh, in absolutely all circumstances. But it was understood that it was a very significant compromise and that if it were ever subject to overuse or abuse, it could undermine the constitutional order. And for the first period of the Charter's history, other than a few high-profile usages of Quebec, it was largely you know, not commonly t- uh, used or triggered. Uh, and it's been and since Robert Ford used it, uh, um, or sorry, I should say Doug Ford used it in the context of uh, his intervention in the city council elections in Toronto uh, about a year ago, and now the Quebec government, uh, again, it's not that it hasn't been used in other places, but it's alarming when it gets used in a kind of very significant way like this, and I think it signifies that the fear of the Quebec government of having this bill 
um, submitted to charter scrutiny without invoking the notwithstanding clause because I think it's very obviously uh, in many ways a violation of the guarantee under Section 2A of the Charter to freedom of religious and conscious uh, and uh, I think um, likely out of keeping with the values of, um, of, of, of most Canadians. Now, this is where I get a little fuzzy. Um, we, of course, have our Constitution, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, yeah. ties all together. Uh, Quebec has its own Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms, and I don't believe they've ever signed on to the Constitution here, and that's when I get fuzzy about yeah. sort of the federal implications within Quebec and what does or doesn't apply with the differences between sort of Quebec's status as a province in that context. Well, it's important to understand that the Quebec has basically human a human rights law, which is not unlike human rights law that other provinces have, but they call it the Quebec Charter, so that's the origins of the confusion, and it contains many similar protections to those that are contained in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and in some ways is more robust and different. Um, however, even though the Quebec was um, a non-signatory to the uh, Charter in the first place, the Charter, there's no question, there's no difference of legal opinion on this. There's no question that the Charter and the entire Constitution of Canada is binding um, on Quebec. And, you know, um, Quebec officials acknowledge that. That's why they're, um, you know, trying to invoke the notwithstanding clause to avoid the application of the Charter. They understand there's no argument that the Charter is not binding Quebec. It binds Quebec as it does uh, the rest of Canada. Okay, so in your mind, then, um, how does this how does this whole thing proceed? Because I know with federally, uh, the government is always a little sensitive about going in and messing with Quebec or telling Quebec what to do. Uh, how does this unfold? Do you think? Well, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, again, it's a very significant thing for, and this is, you know, there's been different usages of the notwithstanding clause to do various and sundry things, including things around, you know, um, protecting the French language and, and um, French culture. Um, but this is really of a new order. I mean, we're talking about um, a, a law which requires... Uh, people not to wear any outward signs of religious observance if they're working in the public sector, um, and you know, and and create significant penalties, including you know, loss of job and livelihood uh, as a result of doing this. Um, so I think this will bring us to a fairly significant crisis in terms of relationships between Quebec and the rest of Canada, um, as well as relationships between you know the majority and the minority within Quebec. Um, and I think that if the government is not convinced, that is the government of Quebec, is not convinced to draw back from the threat to use the notwithstanding clause, I think it does begin, again, along with the earlier example of, um, of Mr. Ford's particularly high-profile usage of it, or threat to use it, I should say, uh, a few months ago, start to create the conditions whereby you know, the, the um, strength of the Constitution and its reliability uh, can be subject to question, and that is not good for the rule of law. Uh, let's uh, switch the focus to some United States matters. Um, the Mueller report is we're all waiting to see see what happens there. Uh, it sounds like, according to William Barr, the Attorney General, we're going to see sort of a, I don't know what the phrase, maybe a stripped down or an abbreviated or a, uh, definitely a redacted version of the Mueller report on Thursday. Uh, your thoughts about what we might see in there and what, what how extensive or not these redactions may or may not be? 
Well, I mean, we already have, uh, Mr. Barr has already said that he's in the process of, and the delay on the release has been the careful redaction of the report, and the, he says that he's redacting and shielding uh, from public view four specific categories of information, okay? One of them is uh, grand jury material. We've talked about uh, what that is before, and it's that in the U.S. system, um, in order to determine whether there's even enough evidence to bring charges, a, a jury of usually 23 or 24 people is brought together and the bare allegations are made there and that jury makes a determination whether they should be uh, made into charges in a real jury impaneled. Um, and usually the evidence of those deliberations are private because there's it would taint individuals or uh, people about whom allegations were made where there was insufficient evidence to go forward. Um, so that's um, arguable, but when there's a matter of public interest, there's also precedent for releasing grand jury materials. So again, in this case, I think that there's going to be an argument over that. Uh, the next category of stuff which will likely be redacted and shielded from public release um, are details uh, which uh, the release of which would harm ongoing investigations. Um, you know, it's hard to see how that will uh, factor in here. There certainly are a lot of ongoing um, investigations, um, so it will be interesting to see which type of redactions sort of correspond to that um, category. A third category is any information that would potentially compromise what's usually called sources and methods in intelligence collection. So these are kind of um, national security uh, questions, right? So this uh, could you could imagine a, a, a number of things. You know, if Mr. Um, Mueller, I mean, sorry, if Mr. Barr exercises his discretion and decides that these are questions which relate to you know questions of investigating foreign interference, he could try to hold those back. And then anything that would would unduly infringe on personal privacy or reputa reputational interests of of third parties. Okay, another thing which can be redacted, sort of along the same reason and the same lines as it as the grand jury material would be reacted. Um, but I think particularly when, when Mr. Barr has been describing the basis for his intended redactions, he's really emphasized this last point, that the, uh, the possibility of unduly infringing on the personal privacy and reputational interests of peripheral third parties. Um, and I think that really does uh, suggest strong, more strongly than anything that Mr. Barr wants to keep secret any kind of information um, that's... Um, you know, that's sort of derogatory uh, for anybody in the public eye or anyone else, including the president, which didn't end up being central to uh, the Mueller investigation. So it's very unclear how much, just how much of this thing is going to be redacted. A lot of legal experts say that, you know, under the circumstances, due to the amount of public interest involved in, in, in keeping with principles of transparency, that they should err on the side of not redacting rather than redacting. But it's expected there'll be a lot of redactions. And it's expected that uh, the um, uh, Congress will attempt to um, have a full unredacted version or challenge some of the redactions and that there will be subpoenas forthcoming. And as I've said in the past, we can expect that this will wend its way up uh, to the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, the other issue that's sort of related I want to bring uh, onto the table here is um, we've we've talked a lot about Mr. Barr and uh, his uh, suspected biases or where he lies in the political field and how that may overlap with his uh, how he performs his job as Attorney General. Uh, and something happened uh, last week that laid credence to that, and that was he sort of espoused a, uh, a Donald Trumpism sort of extremist thought that um, uh, intelligence agencies, namely the FBI, had surveilled or were wiretapped. Uh, the Trump team or the Trump offices, uh, something that I don't think has had any legitimate evidence to back up. But anyway, Mr. Barr has espoused that this might be a thing, and, and he's something that he is going to look into as the Attorney General, which I, th I th 
quite frankly, found a little worrisome. Well, look, one of the reasons um, that uh, ultimately led to the parting of ways between Mr. Trump and his uh, first attorney general, Jeff Sessions, was uh, not only his unwillingness to, uh, or not only his willingness to recuse himself from the Mueller investigation, but his unwillingness to engage in sort of uh, investigations of Hillary Clinton and other political enemies of Donald Trump, where there was no evidence to support doing so, or investigations had already concluded that there was... Um, nothing illegal that happened. Um, and this allegation around, um, you know, the, the idea that the Justice Department under Barack Obama spied on his campaign, um, or otherwise improperly surveilled him has been one he's been making from the beginning. And it's in keeping with a lot of the, um, claims that Mr. Trump has made about Mr. Obama and his administration that have never been founded on fact. And that seem like a kind of, um, you know, almost an irrational obsession with uh, taking some of the taint off the prior administration. It's, it's hard to sort of figure out what motivates it. But you're right. It's very disturbing uh, to see Mr. Mueller doing this. Am I surprised? No, I'm not. And I think that ultimately responsibility for this lies in the Senate, which confirmed him, because it was obvious before his confirmation that he had sent unsolicited uh, memorandums, uh, a memoranda to uh, the Mueller report indicating that he felt there was no basis for the report. And he had appeared on multiple sort of cable news network shows as a talking head uh, for Mr. Trump's um, sort of, uh, um, you know, key um, point that there was nothing to it and that was a witch hunt, et cetera, et cetera. So having done that, he was effectively auditioning for the role, I think, uh, in the public, knowing that Mr. Trump would probably inform himself by who was the best advocate for him on TV, knowing also that Mr. Trump viewed the office of the Attorney General not as the Chief Law Enforcement Officer of the United States government, but as just yet another personal attorney. Um, for him, and so I think that uh, he was able to get uh, Bob Barr through because he was given the benefit of the doubt for a variety of reasons, including the fact that he'd been confirmed uh, two decades ago as George H.W. Um, Bush's Attorney General, and based on the fact that he was known to have a personal relationship of mutual respect and have worked with Bob Mueller. Um, but I think based on what was available on the record and what uh, this person had clearly said, uh, it, was a, it was a bit of um, an overly optimistic um, thing to think that, that uh, would exactly what has occurred um, wouldn't occur. Um, and as I've said before, I, I think the obvious strategy here is, is that the, to sort of give a gloss to the um, report and to suggest that um, it was left to him to make a decision about um, obstruction of justice, which to my mind will have to see the report. I think it was probably left to Congress. And then to sort of give a gloss on everything else, uh, nothing to look onward here, allow the president to declare a victory and allow the concentration of the public and the media, which is very short indeed, uh, to move on to the next thing. And so then when the report comes out at first highly redacted, um, there's it's hard to make out what in there really see the key details and then there's fighting going on about the redactions and it, it goes on for months on end and it just dilutes the effect of the whole thing so that to my mind is the strategy uh, and I think that's the strategy um, you know that's uh, it's typical of um, authoritarian leaders who manipulate the public and the media um, to avoid transparency it, it's not the usual playbook of an American president and that's why I think um, we're having a difficulty um, actually realizing uh, the reality of what's going on yeah, no kidding. It's pretty sad out there sometimes. Uh, Jeff, always appreciate the words. Thank you, sir. Well, I appreciate you having me on, Shane, and we'll look forward to next week. That is lawyer and lecturer up at TRU, Jeffrey Myers, with his weekly segment on Canadian and U.S. politics. And that brings us to an end this edition of The Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow.
where the interior stays connected. This is CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. Radio NL, 610 AM. Local News Now.